Good morning, everybody, and go Vols. Thanks, buddy. I hope you're doing well. If you're here, it means you don't have a lake house. Happy Labor Day, right? Or you don't have any friends that have a lake house, or any friends, friends who have a lake. It means we need new friends, don't we? We all need new friends. And if you're watching online and you're at a lake house, I hope you get a sunburn, right? <laughs> Not really. Um, we're going to be in Acts 22. We are still moving our way through the book of Acts. We're, we're definitely in the last chapters of it, the last kind of scene of what's going in the church as it grows. And while you're turning there, there is something in science called a hormetic stress or a hormetic effect. And I don't expect you to know what that is, but it's just a stressor that is applied on the body or a system that's kind of the sweet spot that provokes change or provokes growth. So when you go to the gym and you work out, that applies what's called a hormetic stress. Saunas, ice baths, it shocks the system, causes a little bit of stress to the system, but you grow from it. It's good, right? And it's not just the human body that a hormetic stress is helpful. Um, businesses, even churches, can undergo um, a certain kind of stress that provokes growth and innovation. I have found that I enjoy and function at my highest level with a little bit of chaos, and a little bit of challenge injected into it because it provokes innovation. I think innovation is important. But it's hard to innovate when everything is stable <laughs> and everything is under control and predictable. I remember when the pandemic was brand new. I don't know if you remember that day or two, that 48-hour period where everybody was buying as much as they could before we were trying to bend the curve down for the next two weeks to help out our emergency workers. And, and I mean, places like Best Buy were shutting down indefinitely. There were other retail stores shutting down indefinitely. The mall was shutting down. I remember being in the parking lot of Best Buy because I needed to buy batteries for the microphone so that we could broadcast from my living room, right, to do services. But I didn't know what battery size I needed, so I just bought all of them. I bought like two of every single battery there. I just did this on the shelf right into the basket, right? And I remember the employee coming up and saying, hey, yo, listen, we're shutting down in five minutes, five minutes, and then the world ends. So whatever you're going to get, get it. So I got it, got into the truck, and I remember being on the phone with Chaz, who was just up here. He was the one that gave the welcome. I remember being on the phone with him and we were just kind of talking out loud, this new thing called the pandemic and we didn't know what to expect. And I said, listen, I know that this is a little bit scary and I know people are hurt, people are freaking out and I don't really know what to expect, but I gotta be honest. I kind of like the challenge a little bit. I like a good curveball every now and then and to be honest, this kind of gives us permission to think out of the box a little bit when it comes to the church, because there were some things we were doing, now we get to just stop doing them, and they probably won't come back. Some of you, you haven't even noticed what those things are, which means that we didn't even need them, right? And now there are some things that I've always wanted to do that maybe we can start doing. And so it provoked a little bit of innovation. But innovation fatigue sets in when you never have control, and it is only chaos, and it is only challenge then it's no longer a hormetic stress, it's just trouble. Listen, it's no fun to exist perpetually at the mercy of man and at the mercy of moment. It's, it's no fun to just exist in a system where there is no control at all. And maybe this is reality for some of us today, right? You're at the mercy of others. You're waiting on the whims or the decisions of somebody else, and that's not much fun, is it? To be led around, 
to not have any control over your future. Or maybe you're held hostage, maybe not by mankind, but by the moment. Maybe it's something to do with your health, your biology, or your money, or your lack of money. Maybe you just feel held hostage by God himself. Whatever it is, you're not in control and you hate it. And I think the passage that we're going to cruise through today is going to be helpful for those of us who feel like we have no control over our environment, but we just feel led around, like we're in chains. We're just at the mercy of man and at the mercy of moment. Because our passage shows us a picture of Paul who also is not out of chains, nor will he be moving forward. We said this last week, but from this point or last week moving forward, Paul is going to be in some form of incarceration. He's going to be in some form of chains. He's going to finish his story in captivity. In fact, when we left him last week, we left him being threatened, mocked, punched, beat up, and now he's being led. Why is this? Because he's triggering. Paul is a triggering guy. His death seems to be the only thing that's going to make anybody happy, right? Not just him being shut up, but him being extinguished Totally. I think to, to successfully enjoy your Bible, to read it, and to really enjoy this, you have to remember that this is a book of emotions and feelings and circumstances. It's a book of real experiences. I mean, first of all, it's a book of different genres. There's different genres of literature. It's not, you, you don't read the wisdom literature like you would uh, apocryphal literature, like in Revelation. You don't read um, the poetry like you do the narratives. But it does contain a lot of experiences and deep emotion. And that's good because you have experiences and you have deep emotion. If we forget this when we read the Bible, it just becomes a book full of factoids, right? About ancient people doing ancient things with ancient words and ancient places. And it feels so far and irrelevant from our day of electric cars and memes. And thank God a 12-game playoff coming in 2026, right? It feels so far from that and gender fluidity and whatever is moving through the news cycle. So to honor the Bible, we have to read it not as passengers just looking in on it like it's an ant farm, but as participants as we step into it, as, as, we, as we connect to it and the people going through real things. Now listen, we're not in chains like Paul is. We're not first century Christians in the Middle East, but we are human and God is still God, that much is true. So the big question I want you to carry into this passage as we walk through it is who is God to you? Who is God to you when things are firmly out of control and you feel like you're at the mercy of man in moment? Who is God to you? Who is God to you when your freedoms are removed or you feel like you're in jeopardy? Who is God to you when your marriage and your family is spinning out of control, your career, is out of control. Your health is out of control. I think we know who God is to us in those seasons or in those moments by observing two reactions that come out of us. It just oozes through the pores. One of them is anxiety and the other one is anger. They're not the same thing, but they often travel together. Not all the time, but often they travel together. Anger and anxiety. Anxiety comes whenever you feel like you ought to have control over a moment, yet you are pretty resolved. You do not have control over the moment. You feel like you need to, you should, you ought to be able to have control over this environment, but it's, it's running out of control. And, and the distance between those two causes friction in us, and that's what we call anxiety. The inability to see around the bend of the future. 
Not to be able to control all the spinning variables in the universe. That's what anxiety is, ultimately. Anger is something different. That comes whenever we feel like something is being stolen from us, taken from us, right? Someone cuts you off on the interstate, and you're giving them the bird, right? What did they take from you? They took your lane. But they also took a level of control. It took a level of safety. might even feel like they disrespected you, which means they removed some respect. They took something from you. And that produces anger. Maybe someone takes your time or takes your money in such a way and it it provokes you into being angry with them. All kinds of things can be taken from you. So we feel like we ought to have something under control and yet we don't, and that's anxiety, and yet we're angry that other people put us in that position and that produces anger. And so sometimes they do travel together because they did it to me. They took something from me. The White House did this. The Fed did this. The media does this. My HOA does this. My boss, my wife, my husband, inflation, recession, war, supply chain. It is a long list of things that can make you anxious and steal something from you, putting you in a place where you feel like, I just don't have any control. I'm just at the whims of creation, and that's broken. I'm just being led around like I'm in chains. I mean, how many times have we heard In the last couple years, the phrase, wow, we've never been this divided before as a country. Why are we divided? Because we feel like things are being stolen from us, and it's making us angry. You have one group over here that feels like something's being removed, and they're angry. Another group feels like something totally different is being removed, and they are angry, and everybody's angry. So the question is this, who is God to you in those moments? And this is what's important. Whoever, or let me just say this, However, you're acting when something is being removed or you feel out of control, that is your theology. That is your doctrinal statement. It would be one thing for me to say, everyone pull out a piece of paper. I want you to write down, you know, a couple doctrinal statements. What's good theology for you? I think if you've been in the church for a certain amount of time, you might scribble down something like, well, I think something about like the Bible being inerrant. I'll just write those two words. Bible is inerrant, you know. Or there's only one way to God, and that is through Christ, you know, or all men are sinners. I mean, you might write those down, but let me, let me just be frank. How you act when something is being stolen from you, how you act when your world is spinning out of control, that's your theology, friend. That is how you really see God. That is your core doctrinal statement when you're in the trenches and you're wringing your hands or you're throwing temper tantrums. So today we see God handling Paul, and this is going to be helpful for us because Paul is not just on mission. He's on mission when his front yard is on fire. See, I think this is like week 37, 36 or 37, we've been going through the book of Acts. It's a long book, right? And we've been talking about often how we're all called to be missionaries. It's one of our identities. If you're in Christ, you're a missionary. You're a son or a daughter of the king. You're a new creation. You're an ambassador. You're so many things. And you're a missionary. But we're not just called to be on God's mission to the broken world. We're called to do it when our front yard is on fire, when things are difficult for us. The reason that's important is because often we tell ourselves, I will be purposefully, intentionally on mission when the season is over. Oh, I'll get involved in a missional community where where I'm on mission with others when this season is a little less tough. I'll take my neighbors more seriously, my peers more seriously, my family more seriously. I will extend, demonstrate, declare the gospel. I'll do all that stuff when this fire is put out. But friends, that's a lie, right? You know that. I know that. 
We've been going through those seasons since we popped out of the womb. We'll be going through those seasons until the day we die. Our front yard will always be on fire, and that's what Paul is dealing with right now. And yet, he's not at the mercy of anyone. He's not at the mercy of any moment. And I need this passage. I need it a lot. So let's look at, let's go back, let's look at 2221. Okay, so we read this last week, this last verse, but I think it's good to start off with this passage as we set it up, because what happened is, is they just laid hands on Paul, somebody threw an elbow, somebody probably kicked him, they said a lot of nasty things to him, and then Lysias, who is the, who's kind of the head guy, we called him the hall monitor last time, he came in and he grabbed him, and he's trying to figure out what's going on, but he, he can't make fact out from fiction because it's so loud and everyone's saying something different. So they put him in chains and they carry him out of there, okay? Then he stops and he starts to tell Everybody who's listening, the whole crowd, his testimony, and they're all hushed. They're all listening because he's speaking to them kindly. He's speaking to them um, in the language that they understand. He's being very contextually sound and thoughtful for them. That's where we're at in this. Verse 21, this is where we'll start off. This is going to be very helpful for us. It says, and he said to me, go. This is Paul saying that God said something to him. Paul says, God said to me, go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Okay, this is crazy. What what they're basically saying is this guy shouldn't be breathing the same air that we're breathing. That's how mad they are. I mean, they're throwing cloaks in dust into the air. So on their, their little color emotion wheel that they have, that's where the dial is pegged out at pinnacle rage. And this is reserved usually for blasphemy. They're hearing something that offends them at a core level, and this is how they kind of show it. it but, but here's the thing. Paul had to have known that was going to happen, right? He's no moron. He had to have known he wasn't going to get but just like one syllable past the word Gentile before they all went bananas. And that's exactly what they did. He triggered the mob. And in this, there is a principle for you and me as we are called to be on mission. The principle is that God's missionaries are called to speak triggering words or the gospel can't be told. That's our option. When we declare the gospel to the world, we already know what the hesitations are going to be, right? You can see it in their eyes, can't you? You know you are one word away from dust being thrown into the air. You know it because you know that person probably. Or the news is telling you what is triggering now and what is not. It's telling you what it expects from you and how you declare something. In other words, you know how to get dust thrown in the air. You also know how to keep it on the ground. I mean, the crowd might be hushed until you say something about sexual depravity or abortion, or gender, and you know this, and I know it too. And our temptation, the church's temptation, is to maybe shave a triggering word off, to pull a statement out, to maybe skip a book of the Bible, maybe skip a passage that's a pretty pinnacle passage, because we know it's going to happen. 
Had Paul just skipped the whole to the Gentiles? Had he just taken that out? And you know he was cruising towards that phrase. You know in his mind he was like, all right, it's about to get real. It's about to get real real fast because I'm going to say the G word and stuff's going to go a little nuts whenever. You know he, he probably could have just skipped it and what would the crowd have done? They would have stayed hushed. He, he might have got a few friends out of that. Maybe they would have pulled him out of chains, welcomed him to the club. Because they're fine with a Jesus that would let them do what they always had done. A Jesus that doesn't interrupt their life. A Jesus that doesn't indict their way of life. But the true story of Christ and the gospel is far too provocative for business just to go on as usual, right? I mean, Paul's preaching a gospel that is for all cultures, not just a Jewish culture. He's saying something very offensive and triggering, which is you don't have to become a Jew to find Christ. That Christ will rescue you immersed in whatever culture that you're in. That's triggering. The mob was triggered whenever he said, our deeds aren't going to make us righteous. Right? Our, our deeds actually bury us. But Christ, Christ dies on the cross, taking our worst and giving us his best. He trades spots with it. That's triggering. For him to say, hey, listen, there's no good guys and bad guys. There's no protagonists and, and villains. No white hats and black hats. We all have black hats. We're all barbarians and brutes and villains and vandals. And we have no ability to save ourselves. And he comes and rescues us. Right? That's triggering. And so they end up with this world would be better off without Paul and his hate speech. Friends, you need to know that your faith in Christ represents to many people around you what is wrong with this world. And there is plenty of dust to be thrown around. Plenty of it. You're free to talk about Jesus being a good teacher. You're free to talk about Jesus being wise, being loving, being kind to the marginalized. Be sure to throw that in. You're, you're free to talk about that, but as soon as you say that their sin put him on the cross, you've got problems. As soon as you say repentance is required, there's problems. As soon as you say you have to lose your life and Jesus is Lord of all, as soon as you say something like he desires obedience, which means change in us, you're going to hear that you shouldn't even be breathing the same air. You see, the gospel is full of good news and it's full of triggers, but it's not good news without the triggers. It can't be. It can't be. I mean, think about the empty tomb, hope from an empty tomb. That's good news. People love to hear that. I mean, think about it. Every Easter or Resurrection Day, there's usually like some clip art or some cartoon picture of a tomb, right? And there's always like yellow rays coming out of it, you know, like sun or light, I guess. I don't know. There's some sort of kind of graphic coming out of the tomb to express hope. It's good news. And it makes absolutely no sense without a triggering bloody cross. It doesn't. A peaceful eternity with God forever where we discover him anew we are enriched by him anew, where we grow more satisfied second by second by second. That's great news. And it makes no sense without a triggering sacrificial lamb on a cross. It makes no sense. Salvation overall is just good news. And it makes no sense without the fact that you and I are embarrassingly inadequate to save ourselves but must be rescued. You see, when you tell the story of Jesus and declare the good news to those in your life, you will sense a moment or two where you fear you're about to lose the locker room. You're gonna say something and they're gonna revolt in some way. 
Your temptation is going to be to cleanse it of all triggers, and if you do so, it's going to be to their harm. And you'll reduce the gospel to just religious static, which isn't even the gospel anymore. It's not even good news. It's helpful to nobody. So in our story here, with all the dust and cussing and screaming, Lysias, he's still not getting any answers, right? All this guy wants to know is, why is Paul so controversial, right? He couldn't find out in the first setting. He's got him up on the stairs above all of the crowd, and he's, he, now he has to move him again. He still has no answers. And so this is what happens. Look at verse 24. The tribune, which is Lysias, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him, which means whip him, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay, this is what's going on. Lysias' strategy to get answers is to flog Paul, which is kind of like waterboarding back then. It's just a way of getting answers from somebody. They're going to torture him. Many people that were flogged, they never survived from this. And if you did survive, it was highly likely you're going to be crippled for the rest of your life. See, Lysias is looking for answers, and this is how the Romans got him. Problem with this whole scene is you can't do this to a citizen without that person being condemned, which would require a trial. And Paul is not about to take a whooping he didn't have to take, right? There's a difference between suffering well and then being a weirdo and hunting for it for the sake of hunting for it. And he's not being a weirdo. And so he's like, wait, this is about to get real hairy. It doesn't have to. So let's talk about this for a moment. And that's what's happening. But Lysias still wants answers. He still doesn't have answers, right? So he calls an investigative session of priests. Let's look at verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay. This has thrown a lot of people, this little passage here, because of how Paul responds whenever he is struck. It looks a little bit like he loses his cool, um, especially when he's compared with Christ, who when Christ was in the same situation did not do this. He did not throw any verbal jabs in the moment. And, and remember, this is the same Paul that before this said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. And when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Well, that's his attitude, but right here is returning fire. It's not blessing or entreating, is he? He took a shot in the mouth, and he's kind of blowing something back at them. So there's a couple theories of what's going on here. I'm going to give you both theories. You could choose what you want, okay? Option A is that Paul did not know it was the chief priest. He just wasn't aware. This was kind of a thrown together session. Maybe they didn't have their robes on. It was kind of hectic. Some people at this point say that Paul had heavy eye damage. That is a theory because he took a beating, a few beatings, but, and there's a couple areas where there, if you read into the text, he might have had some eye damage. So option A is he's genuinely apologetic. Remember, this is the same Paul that told the Roman church in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We went heavy into this passage and some similar sounding ones whenever it came to mandates being handed down and how we work or don't work whenever there's a time for civil disobedience and not civil disobedience as a church. This was one of the passages that we looked at. Titus 3 as well. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work. So that's one option. Option B is that Paul knew it was the high priest that was involved in that punch, and he was being a little bit smart-mouthy, right? He was just more like, oh, hey, well, I didn't know the high priest was into decking people whenever he got annoyed. Interesting, isn't it, you know, that people are breaking the law all of a sudden as they're kind of holding it over me, you know, and it's just his way of being a little bit underhanded. Here's my guess. My guess is that Paul could have had a moment of smart-mouthery. He definitely has the personality for it, right? I mean, the more I read Paul, the more I discover who he is. I could see him doing something like this. I mean, he did fire off a verbal jab whenever someone hit him. That's true. But given his theology of submission to bad authorities and the hectic nature of this scene, at this point, I kind of lean towards option A, right? I could be talked out of it, though. And I think it's inconsequential to how you generally see this passage in the person of Christ. So that's just open-handed. It's up for you to take what you want out of that. I'd never fight you over it. Let's look at verse 6, though, as we move on, okay? This is 23.6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Okay. So Paul read the room. He read the room and he split it between the supernaturalists and the anti-supernaturalists. And it doesn't look like he had to throw a whole lot of dynamite in the middle of the room to get that going, right? He just said one thing and then bam, they're off to the races. And so as it turns out, Lysias is never going to get an answer. <laughs> That's what we get. He's never going to find out why this guy is so controversial because they have to carry him off for a third or fourth time, okay? Look at verse 11. We'll finish this off. Or verse 10, rather. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the following night, 
the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Interesting. Interesting that the Lord comes around at this moment and says, you're not at the mercy of Lysias or any of those priests or high priests or the mob. You're not at the mercy of man. You're not even at the mercy of the powers of hell or this moment that looks so overwhelming, looks so out of control. You're not at the mercy of any of it because I have a plan. And everything that you've been saying here, you're going to say over there in Rome. And my plans never get frustrated. They never get stirred up. God has no plan B, just waiting just in case his will does not march forward. I mean, think about the courage this is going to give him as he's shipwrecked. Think about the courage this is going to give him as there's these little strategies to snuff him out. He knows he's going to preach in Rome. Why? Because God promises him right here. And we know that God is not just a promise maker, but a promise keeper. And this, friends, is as true for you as it is for Paul, and it's what everyone in this room needs to hear and believe. If you want to live a fruitful life where everything feels like it's spinning out of control, you feel like you're chained at the mercy of everything around you, it's not a hormetic stress, it's a stress that will not lift. This is where we enter a passage like this, where we have nothing in common with Paul, and yet we have everything in common with Paul. Because all he is, is he's finding himself in a, in a place where he says, God, are you invested in this moment? Are you even here? I mean, how many times have you said that? How many times have we seen others say that in the Bible, whether it's David or Esther or Peter or John the Baptist? God, are you even here? Where are you? Are you, invest- are you watching Can you stop this? Can you start this? We see it all the time. This is for us. The people who say my life is out of control and I'm anxious and I'm angry and I'm alone. So of course Paul needs to hear this. Interesting to me that God doesn't just break him out of jail. We know he's good at it. He's done it twice now. Why will he not do it again? He did it with Peter. He's done it with Paul. Why doesn't he do it here? I don't know, but it's part of his strategy. It's part of his perfect will, his thoughtfulness that Paul would experience everything that he has experienced and will experience everything after this. And one day, Paul would end up catching sight of God's plan with God right there and be satisfied with it. He would be content. What I mean is one day, Paul is going to see everything that God had involved, everything that God had thought everything that God had built. He's going to see the architecture of God's plan clearly with a perfected and glorified mind. He's going to see that and his only response is going to be worship and wonder and thankfulness. No sadness, no frustration. God, why, well, okay, God, I see why you did it, but why didn't you do it this other way instead? There will be none of that. No Monday morning quarterbacking, no regrets. He'd see exactly what God was up to, and his only temptation would be to drop in wonder and worship. And the same will be for, true for, for you and me, by the way. The same is going to be true for us. You will be filled with gratitude and wonder when you see all of the varied graces of God play out in your history and your struggles and sufferings. And when you see them, there will be no tears, no sadness, and no sting. What looks so horrible today, horrid to you today, will be brought into focus in forever, and you will be satisfied. 
And I know what you're tempted to even do. Even as I say that, you're already scanning the hard drive, right? Thinking about all the horrors that you've had to walk through and go, how is God going to make sense of that? How is God possibly going to make sense of that? It doesn't even make any sense, Luke. I can see God using that flat tire. I can see God using that really difficult season where we just didn't have a lot of money. But that thing, you mean to tell me God is going to bring that into focus? Yes. Yes. How do I know this? Because we have an empty tomb. We have the most out-of-control, horrible moment in human history answered by an empty tomb. When all creation witnessed its own creator being placed in the earth, it looked like Jesus himself was at the mercy of brutes. And that's what you and I would have thought had we been there on the ground. We'd have looked at that whole scene and thought, well, it looks like God's not in control. God, are you here? Are you invested? Are you strong? Are you good? We would have felt anxiety, anger. We would have looked at that and thought there was nothing redeeming about the blood on the cross and the fact that our king, our hope, our general is in a tomb. We'd have thought nothing of it. When all looked most out of control and horrid, the actual opposite was happening. The opposite, death was being defeated. And even now we can see the gospel and say God is very good even more. You can trust God when it feels like you're being chained and led to where you don't want to go. When the stress just won't let up. When you feel like you can't trust God because he's not there. We can. Listen, there is an anger and an anxiety that we have to repent from. There's definitely a flavor of anger and anxiety that we don't. It's probably a different sermon. There is a righteous anger, okay? There's an anxiety of just a shock to the system, a fight or flight. Don't have to really repent for fight or flight, right? Something God engineered in all, all of us to have. But there is an anxiety we do have to repent from and an anger that we have to fall on our face and repent from because it shows that we are leaking in trust and how we repent matters. I mean, friends, listen, you might need to repent for blowing a gasket and punching a wall or throwing the bird on the road or something like that, but that's just surface-level rebellion, right? You're repenting from the fruit that's hanging on a much bigger tree. Ultimately, what we're doing when we are angry like that is we're declaring that God is insufficiently good. He's not good. I got to go out and find good because he's definitely not good. And once I find good, I have to hold on to it. And if anything takes that good from me, Anger is the answer. Anger is the result. But if God is the ultimate good, you can enjoy all things. And when something is stolen from you, taken from you, you might be sad but not inappropriately angry, like a temper tantrum of sorts, right? Friends, listen, whenever you sense rage or anger in someone and it's not a righteous anger or rage, make no mistake, they just lost a piece of their salvation. Pay attention to what it is they're freaking out over. Something in there was saving them, supplying them, and it was taken. That's where we can repent, not just for flipping out or acting out on social media, but repenting for the accusations we lodge against God of, you're just not good. You're a liar. You said you're good, but I don't believe you, and you're a liar. That requires repentance. Same thing with anxiety, right? There is a kind of anxiety, again, that we don't repent for, but we might repent when our anxiety wrecks others around us, when we refuse to sleep and we build strategies as if God doesn't even exist. That requires repentance. But then again, even that is surface-level rebellion. 
underneath is the accusation that God is not in control. God is not in control. That means I better get in control. If he doesn't have his hands on the steering wheel, I better get to driving. If he doesn't have eyes on this, I can't go to sleep. That's a different anxiety altogether, isn't it? That's an accusation that God is not who he says he is. And that requires repentance. So yeah, we repent for our mistrust, which looks like hoarding, looks like an absence of sleep. But we also have to repent of accusing God of just being weak, absent, and a liar. God, you're a liar. You said you'd be strong right now. You're not strong. You're not even here. It's an accusation. We have to repent for that. Okay? So yeah, we repent for surface rebellion, but lurking underneath that is a sin of a very different flavor where we don't believe God is who he says he is and we think him to be a liar. And again, that is our doctrinal statement. How we see God when it feels like everything is out of control, that's our theology. That's our theology. So yeah, we have a lot of room to repent as a church for sure. But listen, if you're watching online or you're here, and you would say you don't love Jesus, or you're not sure if you love Jesus enough. Maybe something happened when you were a kid, or in college, or in high school, and you're not sure, quote unquote, if it took. You don't know if you're saved or not. You, you have no idea what even that means. You, you don't kind of have your arms around the whole idea of God. Maybe you're just checking it out, kicking tires on the whole Christianity thing. Let me just ask you, what about the gospel is most triggering to you? When people tell you the story of God in the person of Christ for the good of mankind at the cost of Jesus, when people tell you the story of Jesus, what part of that story do you wish was not in there? <laughs> if you could go in and edit, highlight, hit delete, what would it be? That is the point of the gospel that you have to submit to. That's the point of the gospel that you have to trust that God is better, wiser, stronger, and more control, sovereign, kind, thoughtful, that's the point of decision for you. Because listen, Jesus isn't looking for you to acknowledge that he's a good teacher. <laughs> he's not looking for that. Or that he's helpful to the poor. There is no sub-gospel where you just add Jesus to the set of worldviews that you've already ensconced in your life. It's not what he's looking for. He's Lord of the cosmos, giving grace to barbarians like us who deserve the wrath that we have rightfully earned. He's the king of life who carried a cross built for you and me. He didn't die on the cross for being Jesus. He died on the cross for being you. He felt pinnacle wrath as the replacement for mankind. He's champion over the grave, denying death of the one job it had, mocking the tomb itself, becoming the first fruits of new life, leading a family of brothers and sisters who will enjoy him for eternity. He's not safe. He's triggering. He's not a God that just lets life go on as normal. He's a disruptor. He's a disruptor. He will not just simply be added. He replaces. And listen, your life won't magically be better. It won't even be under more control. <laughs> but you'll have this peace that we see Paul with. You'll see this peace felt in prisons, felt under the sword. You too can be content and satisfied even in your struggles because God is good and he is in control. And that could be yours. That can be yours.